Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as the Sabbath hours are passing, we have felt your presence with us. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have blessed, the way that you have spoken through your messengers. And Lord, may all of these efforts that have been put forth not be wasted. May there be decisions, firm decisions made during the course of this weekend. And for those who have already decided, may you continue to help them, to strengthen them, especially in their time of need. And tonight, Lord, as we spend a few thoughtful moments gazing upon loving, sweet Jesus, may we be changed into the same image. Send thy spirit one more time this day. Convict us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were at our 3 o'clock meeting, we had a wonderful Bible study. And uh, I believe the Lord worked it all together because a lot of what I wanted to say has been already said. It's a blessing because it gives me more time to talk about more things that you haven't heard yet, perhaps. Not much past 12. But the title of our message tonight, or our Bible study, is simply called, Looking Unto Jesus. These three words, perhaps, the most beautiful words in the human language. And as we begin tonight, let us begin by beholding Jesus. Let us start this evening our Bible study, and throughout the course of the Bible study, you will see that the pivotal texts all contain an admonition, an encouragement, a challenge, perhaps, to look at Jesus. So let us begin tonight by looking at Jesus in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. Revelation 14 and verse 14. For those of you who have Bibles, please look there with me. If you don't, please share. This is a Bible study. We have many texts to see, look at tonight. Revelation 14, verse 14, and it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp what? Sickle. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him, to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ, that is sitting, that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle, and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This, my friends, is the picture that Revelation 14 paints for us of the second coming of Christ. Jesus coming as a farmer to gather his fruits, to harvest his people. But when is that time, based on verse 15, when is the time of harvest? When is the time to reap? What does the verse tell us? The angel says, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. When is that time? For the harvest of the earth is what? 
ripe. So can we say that the harvest of the earth is when the fruit, when the harvest is ripe? That is exactly what the Bible is telling us. So now we need to understand how, what does it mean for the harvest to be ripe? The Bible explains itself in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 29. Let's begin in verse 28. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. Verse 29. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because what? The harvest is come. So there we see it. When is the harvest, or when is the sickle put forth? When, the, when is the harvest, harvest come? When the fruit is brought forth. Are you following me so far? This may be elementary, but we're going somewhere with this. Bear with me. So the harvest comes when the fruit is ripe. And the fruit is ripe based upon this text, these passages. When the full corn is developed in the ear. When the fruit is brought forth. Now, I have a question. How do we know when the fruit is ripe? Fruit is brought forth, full corn in the ear, okay, but how do we know when that corn is ripe? You can see a corn growing, if any of you have grown corn before, it can become big, but yet if you bite into it, it is not good, because it's not ripe. So how can we tell? How can we tell when the fruit is ripe? The Bible explains itself again. We're going to need to do a little bit more thinking here. Look with me in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Let us begin in verse 23. 23 and 24. The Bible says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And now, all you Bible scholars, what event is Jesus talking about in that phrase? His crucifixion, precisely. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and what? Die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth what? Much fruit. Many things we can learn from just these two verses. First of all, the seed falls into the ground and it must die first. If the seed does not die in the ground, there can be no more fruit that comes after it. If you, if you take a, a kernel of corn or wheat, whatever it is, and you plant it in the ground, that's the only way you can get more corn or more wheat. But if you just put it on your shelf, put it in a can, store it somewhere, you can't get any more fruit. But, what kind of fruit does a corn of wheat, or let me say, a seed of wheat, bring forth? Wheat! Elementary, but if you plant a seed of wheat in the ground, will you get apples? Will you get, for all of Asians, durians? Will you get mangoes? The seed that you plant is the sign, or it's the pattern, or it's the picture of the type of fruit that you want to get. If you plant corn, you get corn. If you plant wheat, you get wheat. If you plant apple seeds, you get apples. And the seed that goes into the ground 
When it dies, it brings forth much fruit after its kind. You following me so far? But that also answers the question that we asked earlier. How do we know when the fruit is ripe? You can think, for the, think about it for a moment before I explain this to you. You see, the, 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 the seed, before a seed is able to produce other fruit, it must become ripe first. So let me put it another way. We know the fruit is ripe when it has seeds that can produce other fruit. Or let me put it another way. When the, when the seed or the, when the fruit is brought forth perfectly in the image, perfectly reproduction of the original seed, that is when that fruit is ripe. Are you following me? So let me ask you this next question. Based on this verse, who is the seed? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, He said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and dies. It abideth alone. So Jesus Christ is saying, I am going to the cross to die. For what purpose in this context? To bring forth more people like me. Jesus Christ is going, going to the cross not just to forgive sins. Yes, He's doing that and that's vitally important. But Jesus Christ is saying, I want more people that have my image. The plan of salvation is not just saving you from your sins and then having you go back to sin and then forgiving you again and then you go back to your sin. The plan of salvation is to restore the image of God. That, my friends, that, my friends, is the plan of salvation. And Jesus Christ wants us to be reproduced into His image. Let me read a quotation to you. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. In fact, I know some of you have heard it before. I've shared it with you before. It's found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, paragraph 1. When the fruit is brought forth, Immediately he put us in the sickle because the harvest has come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. And then the next sentence explains what it means for the fruit to be ripe. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come. Then he will come to claim them as his own. That is what Jesus is waiting for right now. People that look like Him, talk like Him, think like Him, act like Him, love like Him. Where are God's people? Do we have the image of Christ today? Or do we have the image of someone else? Do we have the image of Kobe Bryant? Or maybe Britney Spears? Maybe it's, it's, it's a holy image. It's our church pastor. Perhaps it is that evangelist that we just simply adore. Whose image do we have? For all you students, is it your microbiology book? Anatomy, physiology, physics. Those things are wonderful. Those things are good. But those things is not the image that we should have. So the next logical question in this Bible study is how 
do we become like Jesus? How do we become like Jesus? And the answer is simple. So simple. In fact, it's the title of our message tonight. By looking unto Jesus. Look with me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. I believe this is a scripture song for some of you who are familiar with it. I'm not singing it, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all, with open face, doing what? Beholding, looking as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, looking unto Jesus, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The answer is simple. By looking unto Jesus, we shall be changed from glory to glory into the same image. But the Bible tells us there is a specific place, there is a specific portion of Jesus' life that He wants us to focus on. There's a part in his ministry, there's a part in his life, there's a certain aspect of Jesus that we can truly look at to behold his glory so that we too can be changed as a human being into the same image. Where is that? The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 We're all familiar with this chapter. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But verse 14 gives us the answer to our question. Verse 14, And the Word was made, what? Flesh! And dwelt among us. But for what purpose? He became a flesh and dwelt among us. For what purpose? It says, And we did what? Beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So where is it specifically that the Apostle John, that the Bible is telling us to fix our gaze so we can behold the glory of Jesus, so we too can be changed into the same image? Where? In the Word who was made what? Flesh. The Bible is telling us, look at the humanity of Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus who lived as a man and how He lived so you can be the same. That's perfectly logical. If we look at Jesus before His incarnation, we will die in despair because we can never achieve that that high standard. But when we look at Jesus as a man, there is some hope for us. Let us look now. Let us behold Jesus. Let us gaze now. Let us look Upon Jesus, the Word who was made flesh. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16 says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but you took on him the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Verse 18 continues, For in that he himself 
has suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. My friends, this text is explaining how Jesus came, what type of man He was. He took not on Him the nature of angels. It would have been almost an infinite humiliation for Jesus to become an unfallen angel. It would have been even further for Him to become unfallen Adam. But yet, He took the seed of Abraham. He took the same defective equipment that you and I were born with. Why? So He could suffer being tempted. Not just be tempted for the sake of being tempted, my friends, but so that He can succor or help you who suffer from the same defective equipment, the same problems in your everyday lives. That is the Jesus we're beholding. Jesus Christ as a human being, 100%. That is Jesus. But before you despair, Hebrews 4 verse 15 continues. Let us look there. Hebrews 4 verse 15. It says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Repeating the same thing. He could feel our infirmities. He could understand the things we suffer, the problems we face from day to day, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came and He took the same defective equipment that I have, but yet He did not sin. But for what reason? Verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in t- to help in time of need. Jesus Christ became a man not, and, be, and to be able to be tempted and He was tempted but he, was, he did not do that just for the sake of being tempted, my friends. He did that so we can have victory also. If you were there for our meeting this afternoon at 3 o'clock, he, our brother Jason, he laid out clear, simple ways that we can ask the Lord to grant us the victory. Let us look to Jesus. He is our example. He is our strength. He can give us the victory. Why? Because He became one of us. He was not satisfied just sitting in His throne in the sky by and by looking at us and say, well, if, you feel, if I feel like it, then I'll, I'll give you a few crumbs of grace. He came to be one of us. But yet, He was without sin. So He gave us this example You can be like me. And I am here to help you. But Jesus, He continues. Let us continue looking at Him in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 14. Hebrews 9 and verse 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus Christ offered Himself without spot. For those of you with a King James Version in your margin, what does the word spot mean? Fault. Jesus Christ presented Himself without fault before the throne of God so that He, through His blood, can purge our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. You see a repeating pattern here, don't you? You see Jesus, number one, He became a man. Number two, He was tempted like as we are. Number three, He was, he was sinless. He did not sin. He was without spot. He was faultless. But all for the purpose of one very important thing to help us overcome sin. Jesus offered His blood according to this verse so that He can wipe our consciences clean of dead works so that we can serve the living God. That is Jesus. He came to suffer as, as a human being in our body so that He can help us. But yet, He was without fault before the throne of God. It continues. Let's look in First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 Let us begin in verse 21 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us He suffered for us for what? The next few verses says leaving us a what? Example that ye should do what? Follow in His steps. But what did He do that we ought to follow in His steps? Verse 22, Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in His mouth. Jesus Christ became a man. He suffered as a man, being tempted to succor them, us who are also tempted, leaving us an example, a way that we can walk in the footsteps of Jesus so we too can be with no sin, with no guile in our mouth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ did that for you and I. Oh, let us look unto Jesus. No guile in His mouth. He was without fault before the throne of God. But how did He do this? That's the essential question. Because if Jesus came to this earth and He lived as a man in our body, but some part of Him was still not man, if some part of him was still some some part of him was still supernaturally divine and and have power in and of itself, then he has an overwhelming advantage on us. Then he can't. Then we can never walk in his footsteps. Then that that means that the 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 word of God is just holding a carrot in front of our mouth, but we can never reach that. So how did Jesus overcome? What was his secret? Let's look in the Gospel of John, John chapter ten. John chapter 10, verse 25. John 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Simply put, let us just use this text as a launching pad. We have a couple more texts to solidify this point, so bear with me here. Jesus says, in whose name does he his works? In his Father's name. Jesus works in the Father's name. In that phrase, he already gives us some clue as to how he did his works. How he lived his life without sin, above 
the temptations that the devil threw at him. And it was through the Father's name. So let us break that down a little bit more. Let, me ex- let us explain in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 10. John 14 and verse 10. Jesus continues, He says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The works that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, He doeth the works. So how did Jesus work? It was not something that He had to produce out of Himself. He simply depended on the Father who dwelt in Him. Jesus did His works by depending upon the Father. Let us have one more verse here to solidify this in our minds. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 30. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus said, I can of mine own self do what? Nothing. As I hear, I judge, because I seek not mine own will, but the what? The what? The will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus Christ, He did not even say that I could do it on my own power, but just to help you out, I depended on the Father. No! He said, I can of mine own self do nothing. Jesus emptied Himself, made Himself in the form of a servant, in the likeness of a man. So that he himself, he even said, I can do nothing, but I submit my will to the Father in heaven who sent me, and he doeth the works. That gives me hope, brothers and sisters. Jesus is my example. He believed the Father. He gave his will, surrendered 100% to the Father, and in return, the Father worked through him so that he lived with no sin. He was faultless before the throne of God. There was no guile in his mouth. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. For all these things he suffered being tempted so that he can succor them who are tempted by depending on the Father. And Jesus says, let us look there in John 15. John 15 and verse 4. Jesus speaking directly to us now. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. And might I add, as the Father abideth in Jesus, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same, bringeth forth much. What's the next word? Fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But let us look at the inverse of that verse. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do what? All things. The secret is not something we have to fight and produce out of ourselves. Jesus did it. He depended upon the Father. He's our example. He even says in 1 Peter chapter 2, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps, that we too, by depending in Jesus, have Jesus in us, and we in Jesus, just like He was in the Father, in the same way, we can live without sin. We too can live above the temptations 
that the devil can throw at us externally from the internal upwellings of our anger and jealousy and, and the love of self as we discussed this morning from our defective equipment because Jesus went through it and He overcame by the power of God and He gives us the same power today if we claim it by faith. So many people, they ask the question, how is that possible? How is that possible for us to just behold Jesus and to be like Him? Is it really possible for any man to be live like Jesus did? Is it possible? Well, I'm not going to debate with you. I'm just going to read the Bible to you. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Revelation 14 verse 1 gives us another picture in which we are called to look at Jesus. Another picture where we are to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. This Bible study is all about looking at Jesus and, as, and, and John says, And I looked, and lo, a Lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with Him a hundred forty and four thousand, having His what? Father's name written in their foreheads. A group of people called the hundred forty-four thousand. They have the Father's name written in their forehead. Just like Jesus obeyed and He overcame in the Father's name, these people live their life with the Father's name in their thoughts, in their feelings, in every aspect of their life. They live like Jesus lived. Verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, just like Jesus. For they are without what? Fault before the throne of God. Just like Jesus. But what's the secret? What's the secret to their success? How did they get to this point where they are so in the image of Jesus that they can stand with Him on the Mount Zion? Verse 4 tells us, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which what? Follow the who? The Lamb, whithersoever He goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. The 144,000 gained the victory by looking unto Jesus. Looking and following the Lamb of God whithersoever He goeth. And in return, the Bible calls them the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. The first fruits. What does that mean? For those of us who are familiar with the Hebrew agricultural system, or their, I guess their ceremonial system as well, the first fruit is the first cutting of the produce that they were growing. It is the first, so to say, their tithe of their increase, their, their, their 10% in which they cut, cut down and they present before the Lord as their very, very best. But it also means something else very significant. The first fruit means that because we have the first fruits, then that means we can have the rest of the fruits. If we never have first fruits, there are no other fruits because there is nothing. So the first fruit significance is that before we have the first fruits, there is no harvest. 
Before the first fruits become ripe, the rest of the harvest is just sitting in the ground. The harvest cannot come until God has His first fruits who are called the 144,000. And how are they to, how do we know that they become the first fruits? When they're ripe. How do we know that they're ripe? When they are perfectly reproduced in the image of the seed that died in the ground to bring forth more fruit. Jesus is waiting with eager anticipation for, the repro- for His people to perfectly reproduce His character within them. When there is a group of people known as 144,000 who will stand on this earth living in the same defective human nature, the same one that Jesus lived in, when we have this group of people standing on the earth and say, we want to be like Jesus, then and only then will the angel come out of the heaven and cry to him that sit on the cloud, put in thy sickle, for the time of harvest is come. The 144,000 is who God is waiting for. People who look and talk and think and feel and love like Jesus. Why is that so important? Why couldn't Jesus just whisk us all to heaven when we get baptized? Because, my friends, there's this thing called the great controversy. We are all in a battle, for those of you who are in our 3 o'clock meeting. You understand that now. There is an adversary, the devil, the accuser, Satan, the great dragon, the serpent, and he cried out to God, You are unfair. What you say, what you ask us to do is impossible for us to do. You can't expect us to keep your law. It's too much for us. But God said, hey, look at my servant Job. Try him out. He's my man. So the devil pulled out all the stops and let Job have it. But Job never once sinned against God. And Satan said, fine, that's one. I got the rest. Jesus came down to this earth and the devil said, ha, I've got him now. He's living just like a man. He's short. The Bible says he had no comeliness. His form was such that none should desire him. He was not particularly handsome. Jesus Christ, a carpenter? Come on, he didn't even go to school. I can take care of him. But Jesus, by faith in the Father, he overcame the devil. But the devil says, that's not fair. He's the Son of God. So God said, fine, fine. Satan, just you wait. I am going to have 144,000. And when we have that generation of, of this group of people, and I'm not going to argue with you whether it's symbolic or literal, that's none of my business. But when this group of biz- people called the 144,000 arises, God can point at them and say, Satan, look. I told you all along, it's possible, those are my people. And the Satan says, come on God, let me at them. God says, fine. Have your time with them. Do what you will. Give them the hardest test, the, fi- the hottest trials. Put them through the fiery furnace. Try them to see if they will obey you or if they will obey me. So God is waiting with eager anticipation for those people who will say, I want to be like Jesus. I am willing to go to the cross 
if it needs. Because I want to be like Jesus. And the purpose for all this is so much greater than the scope of our perception today. You see, my friends, all these sermons we've been hearing, it's not just about hitting you over the head, just rebuking you and chastising you. It's not about that. It's about something so much more. It's about vindicating the name of God before watching universe. People in the universe is looking at this world and they're really questioning right now, God, are you really truthful? Is this really possible? The 144,000 is not just a neat number. It's not just some fanciful thing that the, that, the, that the Bible writer made up. It is the final vindication of God. The 144,000 is the reason why iniquity will not rise up a second time. The Bible says God is waiting for the first fruits so that the rest of the harvest can be gathered into His barn. So what is God waiting for? He's not waiting for more calamities. SARS, AIDS, the San Bernardino Mountains to literally melt. He's not waiting for the big one. He's waiting. Let me read that quote to you one more time. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people then He will come to claim them as His own. That is what Jesus is waiting for. That is what Jesus is waiting for. And my friends, my beloved friends, everything is in place. Everything. Jesus lived. He died. The blood for the atonement is shed. Jesus has ascended and He's ministered in the holy place. And now he has already entered into the most holy, into the antitypical day of atonement. It is in the final phases. Everything is in place. Even the means, the method through which God is giving us to overcome. Jesus lived life as a man. He can give us his faith, the faith of Jesus so that we too can live the victorious life that he had now what is our response the Bible says looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy the joy the hundred and forty four thousand that is set before him endured the cross despising the shame Are we looking at Jesus today? Is He the author and finisher of our faith today? The limiting factor I can spell out in four letters. W-I-L-L Where is your will? Where have you placed your allegiance this evening? Jesus overcame not by fighting physically, He did not produce something out of himself. He simply surrendered his will to the Father. He's asking us to do the same thing tonight. Where is your allegiance? 
Where is your will? Where is the deciding power of your mind this evening? I know, I know that there is not a single appeal that I can make from this stage tonight that will change your heart. You need to get on your knees. You need to pray to God on your own. You need to make that decision on your knees by yourself. Just you and God. Just you and the Holy Spirit working in you. I can say all I want. I can make you stand. I can make you kneel. I can make you raise your hand. I can make you do backflips. But that will not change your heart. Listen. This evening, I know there are people that have not surrendered their will. I know there are people right now who have this this clinching, overwhelming sense that their sin is so tight around them that there's no way out. But friends, I don't know what you're struggling with, but I know that Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, so that we may come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in the time of need. So tonight, for those of you who want to make a decision, I would ask you to kneel to kneel right where you are. And I will give you a brief moment, a few seconds, maybe a minute at most, for you in your own heart, in your own mind, to say, Lord, tonight and ever after, I want to live as Jesus lived. I want to have that victory that Jesus had. This is the night. I'm not making you get up. I'm not embarrassing you. Just you and Jesus, just you and the Lord, on your knees right now, just a few moments. If that is your prayer, if that's your desire, join me on your knees for just a brief minute. And when I begin to pray, then we will conclude. Our loving Heavenly Father, tonight we have seen, we have heard, we have felt, we have tasted the sweet fragrance of Jesus. And Lord, we see the humiliation that you went through for our sake. We see you going through the life on this earth as a man for our sake. And how dare we count it so cheap to cast it away 
as if it's nothing. You have lived your life as a man, as an example for us. And tonight we, as your children, we want to have the same experience that you had. We want to be ready. We want to be part of the first fruits. Those who have no guile in their mouth. Those who are faultless before the throne of God. Those who have the Father's name written in their foreheads. And Father, we cannot do this on our own. We need thy spirit. We need thy grace. We need thy power. And Lord, we know that as we come boldly before the throne of grace, there will be help for us. There is a high priest there who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. For you were made flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, tonight, we surrender our will to you just as you surrendered your will to the Father. Help us each moment to continue that surrender, that commitment that we will be able to live this life each day, each decision, each, each act that we do fully consecrated in the will of God. That you will think in us, through us, for us, that we may have the character of Christ perfectly reproduced within us so that Christ will no longer have to wait with eager anticipation that he can come and to gather his people in the great harvest. Father, help us this day to see the greater picture. Help us to hasten your coming. Help us to listen to you more so that we can prove to the watching universe that there, that here on this earth there is a group of people who choose to obey God, who chooses to give their will to Him who chooses to live as Jesus lived and to prove the accusations of Satan false once and for all and to rid this universe of this terrible disease of sin forevermore. Help us to see our place in your great plan, in the great controversy. Help us to surrender, to give up, to submit to repent, to come to the foot of the cross each day, to commit our lives to Jesus Christ anew. Please, Lord, tonight as we go from this place, may we not forget the things that we have heard. May the Spirit continue to work. May the Spirit of God pour out in this place that we may have the dunamis power to finish this work. That is our longing, that is our prayer, and we know that that is what you are longing for as well. So bless us to this end and guide us and lead us from this place, from this day forward, even forevermore. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.